Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. In our episode this week, we're going to pick up on the last singular thread, the only one not picked up from our two-part premiere last week, where we left our nine-year-old Nick's boyhood self in his Hollywood visit with Aunt Harriet. Dunn mentions one more item on his list, this one about the mysterious death of Paul Byrne. And this one, as opposed to the last two things our nine-year-old Nick believed about Paulette Goddard and Lana Turner, this one about Paul Byrne is actually probably true. Before we get into the mysterious death of Paul Byrne being covered up by MGM, I want to take a quick moment to say thank you, thank you, a thousand times thank you to our first supporters of Done and Done's Patreon page. I see you in our spyglass with enormous thanks for your support. Kimber V, Diane T, Melissa, Rory, and two anonymous supporters. Very mysterious. Also in my spyglass this week, I want to give a big shout out to my girl Dominique at Breakfast at Dominique's. Breakfast at Dominique's is making gourmet blended delicious coffees that celebrate so much of old time Hollywood. I bring this up because right now I am sipping the Jean Harlow blend as I'm telling you the story today. If you like good coffee, check out my girl Dominique at Breakfast at Dominique's. She's doing such good things over there. Thank you for the Jean Harlow inspiration, honey. I appreciate you. Okay, let's pick up on that last spiderweb from our nine-year-old Nick, the one that may be true. Dominic Dunn will write, I thrill to the lore that Louis B. Mayer, the most powerful man in Hollywood, destroyed the suicide note of Paul Byrne to protect MGM's investment in Gene Harlow. In this episode, we're going to explore the mysterious death of Paul Byrne, his Benedict Canyon home, and the home's connection to Dominic's friend in Hollywood, Jay Sebring. Let's investigate. Paul Byrne is born Paul Levy, December 3, 1889, as one of six kids whose family comes to the United States in 1898, settling in New York City. Paul wants to act and will change his name to Paul Byrne. He will study at the American Academy of Dramatic Art, but acting isn't really so much his thing, he discovers. It is the production end that Paul likes, and so it is on to stage managing then film editing, which will lead to writing and directing, both for United Artists and Paramount, which will get Paul to MGM, the biggest studio of the time, where he will become assistant to the legendary Irving Thalberg, wonderkind director of Hollywood. Now, Paul, at about the age of 22, will meet a gal, Adele Roddy in Toronto. This is about 1911 or so. They will move in together, and Adele, who will now be known by a new name, Dorothy Millette, Paul and Dorothy lived together long enough to be considered common law married. They lived together from 1911 to about 1920, nine years. Dorothy may suffer from physical or mental struggles, or maybe not. 
There's a lot to this story depending on who and what you want to believe. Some folks say that Dorothy is insane and Paul will lock her up in an asylum. Some folks say maybe Dorothy goes insane because Paul's mother, when she finds out Paul and Dorothy are living together, mom completes death by suicide in 1920, which will in turn drive Dorothy to madness. Again, not much of this can be substantiated. There is a stay in a Connecticut sanitarium for Dorothy, but this place is more of a resort where rich people kind of take time to relax. Maybe they head there to dry out a little. There aren't any locks on the doors or anything. Rich and affluent people who can afford to do that would often go to sanitariums just to relax, recover, take a little R&R. The records for this sanitarium in Connecticut burned in 1950, so it's, again, hard to substantiate. There are some other accounts that even before the 1920 date of Paul's mother's suicide, Paul and Dorothy were already living full-time in the Algonquin Hotel. What I can tell you is from the time Paul boogies on out of Dorothy's life on the East Coast to a whole new life on the West Coast as a single guy making an impact in Hollywood, Paul Byrne will continue to support his common-law wife Dorothy, financially and emotionally, up until his death and, well, hers too. Dorothy's death happens two days after Paul's in even more mysterious circumstances, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Paul gets out of the East Coast, leaves Dorothy either at the sanitarium or living at the Algonquin Hotel. Paul moves to Hollywood, and here it's all happening for him, including falling in love again. This time, Paul falls in love with actress Barbara Lamar. Barbara at this point is making her name as a vamp, that's her stereotype, in all the silent films. But alas, Paul's feelings are not returned with quite the same burning a door from his love, Barbara. I know this sounds a little ridiculous, but there is some type of suicide attempt by Paul who wants to flush himself down the toilet. Again, there's a lot to this story depending on your source, and so much has been shaded over by the power of MGM. Add to that 90 years of time. But needless to say, the relationship between Paul Byrne and Barbara Lamar does not work out. Paul, though, will be the godfather to Barbara's son, born in 1922. And sadly, Barbara Lamar will pass away in 1926 at an early age. She's 29. Hard living, Barbara Lamar does in her lifetime. Also, if the name Lamar sounds familiar, the infamous Hetty Lamar gets her stage name by using Barbara's last name when Hetty's stage name is decided upon by Louis B. Mayer, who is an enormous fan of Barbara Lamar's. Paul's going to work through his grief, maybe possibly having some booty calls with his loyal secretary, but not really any great romance. And soon enough, Paul will meet his soon-to-be wife, the lovely and young Jean Harlow, right before her breakout film debut in Hell's Angels, which honestly, her being the star of that movie, all kind of happens by accident. 
Jean Harlow was a replacement for the original actress cast. No one was anticipating exactly what a blockbuster Hell's Angels would turn out to be. I mean, of course, its maker, Howard Hughes, had the idea. But Howard Hughes is burning money on this film like nobody's business. After years of filming and tons of cash, the film is redesigned, now from a silent film to a talkie, which is how the accident of Jean Harlow comes into play. The original actress, not a great talkie. Jean Harlow gets an emergency screen test. Congratulations, kid, you're hired. Now let's talk a little bit about Jean Harlow, Paul's future bride, because it is here in 1930 that the two meet, become friends, and wowza. Paul Byrne believes in Jean's talent and everything Jean has going. Paul thinks Jean is the total package. And well, when it comes to the total package, Jean Harlow, y'all. Sweet Jean is younger than her future bridegroom, Paul. She will come to Hollywood in the 1920s to get her big break, and, well, she will in time. Jean Harlow is the original blonde bombshell. The Jean in Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe's birth name, she's named for Jean Harlow in that middle name. I cannot stress to you how big of a deal Jean Harlow will be when it comes to defining a stereotype in creating a look, in creating the myth of a legend. And though Jean Harlow is America's blonde bombshell, in a lot of ways, poor Jean Harlow leads a less than glamorous life. The blonde bombshell thing is mostly a lot of fabrication. The glamorous image that Jean projects is way different than her roots and background. Jean is born in Kansas City, Missouri, March 3rd in 1911. Her father's a dentist. Her mother is a homemaker. To be fair, mom is a homemaker because mom has failed in her own personal ambitions to make it as a big star. So the thing I want you to know is there's a lot of transference of mom's dreams onto her only child, sweet baby Jean. Harleen is her name, but honestly, she doesn't even know that her name is Harleen until she's about six years old because she's only ever been called baby. Mom and dad divorce when baby Jean is about 11 in 1922. By 1923, mama has taken baby Jean to Hollywood where mom's dreams of stardom for her daughter don't quite manifest, at least at this time. Although Jean will meet some pretty important people, Douglas Fairbanks, Irene Mayer Selznick, but soon mom and Jean are threatened by dad to come home. They will go to Illinois, where Jean will meet an heir to a lot of money, which looks pretty good to Jean and Jean getting out of where she is Her first marriage occurs in 1927. She's 16. And by the next year at the age of 17, Jean and her new wealthy husband have moved to Beverly Hills, where she and hubby will socialize. He has the money to do it. They both also drink a lot. Jean will take a friend to the studio one day and, well, a star is born. But it's going to take Jean getting out of her marriage first. See, Hal Roach will sign Jean originally. 
But that contract is ripped up and done because Jean at this time is really struggling with her budding career demands versus her marital role. But alas, by 1929, that early marriage number one is done and Jean is getting her way into bit parts and then getting hired to claim that role that will land her breaking out in Hell's Angels. Which will get us back to 1930 and the May-December friendship and then romance of Paul and Jean. It is an odd couple. Paul is twice Jean's age and he's kind of mild-mannered. He's not outlandish. And, well, Jean Harlow's out there. She's young and she glows, for goodness sakes, with a figure that will knock you over. And Paul, well, he's not tall, he's not handsome and dreamy by conventional accounts. But Paul is smart, and Paul is making it in Hollywood. He is also kind and understanding, and in some way wants to provide an education of sorts for his protege. I can see how Jean Harlow might be attracted to a very normal, nice guy who sees her as something more than just a sex symbol. There was that thwarted love affair long ago with Barbara Lamar, and some folks will put around the rumor that Paul is a closeted gay. There's also rumors that some people may think he's impotent. Some will say this is mostly studio lore that his genitals are deformed. I think that's all a bunch of bunk. Come on, Paul is shacked up with Dorothy for a decade before coming to Hollywood. There are a lot of rumors flying and people, again, talking throughout the decades of time. But perhaps here, to each member of this couple, it does appear that they're both getting something useful from the other. And they're going to set tongues wagging in Hollywood and, well, all around the world. Now, Paul Byrne is going to make himself super helpful to Gene. There is one instance in particular, and this one instance in him being really helpful to his future bride will probably end up getting Paul's death misruled as a suicide. So the super nice thing that Paul does for Jean Harlow in the spring of 1932, Paul will get her contract bought by MGM. This is outright from Howard Hughes. Paul is helping Jean out. Now, Paul has suggested this idea to Louis B. Mayer moons ago, and Louis B. has been against it for all time. Louis B. at this time at MGM owns all the stars in the heavens. MGM is the studio of the day, and Louis B. knows that we only have the classiest broads at MGM. Gene Harlow's reputation is decidedly not classy. Paul will go to Irving Thalberg, Wonderkin director, who was doing great things at MGM, also married to Norma Shearer at the time, and Thalberg will go to Louis B. Mayer and get the job done. Super nice thing to do for his girlfriend. No good deed goes unpunished, huh, Paul? So, Paul and Jean will get engaged the last day of June in 1932, And our couple will marry two days later on July 2nd, 1932. And Paul has great news for Jean. I am going to deed you this home that I have built in 1930 that I cannot afford. (laughs) 
Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this home now. It is known as the Harlow Burn House. The home is located on Easton Drive in Benedict Canyon. This does have a 90210 zip code before anyone cared about that sort of thing, if you're into it. And the home complex, really, in 1930 is a two-story Bavarian mansion with a carriage house, too. The carriage house includes the servants' quarters, where the kitchen of the home is actually located because Paul doesn't like to smell food cooking. The home is really sort of wonderful if you like odd and queer homes. There's a secret bar behind the built-in bookcase. There is a grand wooden staircase. There's a turret, too. You gotta have a turret. One of the most magnificent things about this home, y'all, is a mural that Paul Byrne will have painted for his lovely young bride, Jean Harlow. This mural is 13 feet wide. On this mural, you just can't make it up, are legends of Hollywood. Their friends, also legends of Hollywood, all dressed up in medieval Tudor garb. In the mural pictured are Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Willis Goldbeck, who is a noted writer and producer, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Irving Thalberg, Harlow, and Irene Selznick. Paul Byrne reportedly is responsible for positioning all of these personalities, and nobody knows why he has Joan Crawford sitting next to Jean Harlow because Joan hates Jean. It's a very curious part about this mural. Also noted in the mural are Irene Harrison, who is Byrne's private secretary, Jean Markey, who is a producer of Mary DeMyrna Loy, Hetty Lamar, and Joan Bennett, not all at the same time. Let's see, also in that mural, B.B. Daniels, Lawrence Tibbet, who is an operatic and film star, John Gilbert, Carrie Wilson, who is a famed screenwriter and producer, David O. Selznick, married to Irene, B.P. Feynman, who is a producer, Edmund Golding, who is a writer and producer, and Ben Lyon, who will star opposite Gene Harlow in Hell's Angels. Kind of super neat to think about that mural. It has been saved. Go find a picture of it. It's remarkable. But there are a few other neat things about the house. It has an amazing pool area. Naturally, there's a swimming pool. But surrounding the pool in this Bavarian mansion, there are these unique gutter spouts with carvings of the heads of silent film stars. These visages look kind of like gargoyles, but the people are carved into the beams of the home that surround the pool. These studio craftsmen from MGM do carve them. And there's a lot of speculation and rumor about who these faces are. Some folks see the four winds. Some folks see Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Some folks see some resemblance to Valentino or maybe John Barrymore. There are some folks that suggest the faces of the people carved in these visages were the people closest to Paul Byrne in his life. 
which would include Barbara Lamar, Carrie Wilson, Douglas Fairbanks, but that fourth visage of close to Paul Byrne in life is never identified, but she sure as heck looks a lot like Dorothy Millette, common law wife. Hold on to that for a minute. So this home is pretty amazing and kind of a cool place, and Jean Harlow hates it. She wants to sell this house and move anywhere else, please. Maybe it is because of the 13-foot mural where she's sitting next to her sworn enemy, Joan Crawford, but it is reported that Jean Harlow gets a creepy feeling about the home. So let's go back and remember about Paul's first common-law wife, Dorothy Millette, who has been living on Paul's dime now for years at the Algonquin Hotel. We can record her there from the beginning of the 1920s. So it's 1932 now, if not a decade, maybe a decade and a half since Paul decided to abscond his East Coast life for his new Hollywood career. But Paul is supporting Dorothy. He sends her money twice a month. He pays for her lodging and food and accommodation. He's supporting her financially. Paul is also still in communication with Dorothy. The thing I want you to know is Jean's career is taking off. Signing to MGM is getting her better parts and better money, and Jean is making a lot more cash. And, well, Paul is going broke trying to sustain his lifestyle of home, supporting not really his ex-wife and all of his other debts. So Paul deeding the house to Jean isn't so much as a gift as it is, hey, babe, you're able to pay for the mortgage. But y'all, Jean hates the house. And the marriage between Paul and Jean inside of two months is not going great, which is going to bring us to Labor Day weekend in September 1932, two months after Jean and Paul marry. This particular Sunday night is a night that goes badly no matter what account you believe or buy into. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to get into the mystery of Paul Byrne's death and the cast of characters who may have done it. So, our man Dominic never writes about this case specifically, only that he believes that Paul Byrne's death was covered up by Louis B. Mayer specifically for MGM. And there may be some truth to that. Y'all, this is going on nine decades now. There are so many rumors and suspicions swirled about this case, and will continue to. The actual facts about Paul Byrne's death get quite clouded, and because of all those clouds, only lend to the mystery about his mysterious death. We will never, in all likelihood, know the full truth about what really goes down Sunday, September 4th, 1932, at the Harlow Byrne home. What I am pretty confident in stating, as my own personal opinion, was that Paul Byrne's death was not a suicide. It feels a lot like murder, and the suspect casting call is very wide here. There are many people who might have had something to gain from the death of Paul Byrne for love or money. And again, in my estimation, whoever does the crime we'll get some sort of helping hand from MGM and Louis B to cover the murder up 
throwing an assist to MGM's latest star in the heavens, Jean Harlow, because MGM is not going to let her reputation or the studio's reputation get tanked. So, sure, maybe the marriage between the two isn't going great. Some folks will say the marriage is never consummated. Some folks say the couple is fighting a lot. Paul has been known to do his fair share of sleeping around and, again, was also common-law married to Dorothy for a decade. So, again, I think this bit from the publicity department from MGM is the thing that clouds the mystery. Here's what we do know. On the morning of Monday, September 5th, Paul's body is found nude, drenched in the smell of his wife's perfume, by his butler, in his bedroom of the Easton Drive home. Paul is dead of a gunshot wound to the head by a 38 caliber revolver. The first call made that morning is naturally to MGM, (laughs) who were first on the scene and have a few solid hours in the home before authorities are called, who will not arrive until about 2 p.m. in the afternoon. What I'm trying to tell you is MGM has a lot of time to manufacture a scene. What the cops show up to in the early afternoon is certainly not what the MGM folks encountered earlier that morning. By the time the cops do arrive, they are looking at two empty wine glasses by the pool, along with the woman's bathing suit, not in the size of Jean Harlow, and a note that reads, Dearest dear, Unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul, with a little postscript. You understand last night was only a comedy. But y'all, friends of Paul's recall that this note was left in his guest book. Hollywood people had guest books for their homes back then, and... Friends recall Paul reading this note out loud a few months before, but the narrative of the note, frightful wrong, abject humiliation and all that, sure fits nicely with the Paul is impotent thing that the studio creates, which rounds out the whole suicide scenario really nicely. Naturally, upon their arrival, MGM as a studio would have swept the house entirely of anything incriminating, any kind of evidence that would go against the scene that they are constructing. And honestly, they have plenty of time to set up a scene to explain a suicide, dig through the house, find a note that works, and craft a scene, regardless of what happened. I mean, that's what they do. They craft scenes. (laughs) Paul's butler will attest that of course Paul wanted to kill himself because of his impotence, and this goes along nicely with the studio version. Paul's gardener says, I never once heard Paul Byrne mention suicide. The gardener will helpfully add, I did hear the couple fighting a lot. They didn't really have an ideal relationship. The cook will chime in, saying, I sure saw a woman I didn't know on the grounds that night near the pool. I'm the one that found the two wine glasses and the bathing suit that wasn't in Jean's size. Wowza, y'all. So many in the cast of characters that may have had a reason to want Paul dead. Again, with a lot of rumor and legend surrounding each. We're never going to know, but let's go ahead and run through the list of our cast of characters. First up, 
any one of the people that Paul Byrne owes cash to. Dude is in a lot of debt, and his life insurance money is going to be helpful for anyone and everyone, really. Next up, Jean Harlow herself. Maybe she's not happy with the way things are going. She gets a little hot, grabs that 38 revolver that Paul keeps in his coat. I mean, Paul is found in the nude, so whoever shoots him knows where that 38 revolver is to be used to kill him. But maybe perhaps the culprit is Jean's mother. There is a lot of alibi substantiation between Jean and her mother. Mom will do anything to protect baby, right? Mom is also known to be dating a guy with mafia connections, her boyfriend's in the mob, and mom will make a trip to see him along with Jean Harlow for just a little quick visit upstate for an hour or so, and they come right back home. It's very odd. Again, there's life insurance, and mama's devoted to her baby. Maybe mom did it. I don't know. Potentially, too, we have another suspect, and possibly the strongest one. This is who, if it was a murder and not a suicide, typically who it gets pinned on. Let's not forget about our common-law wife, Dorothy Millette, who you'd think, because you're investigators. How could she have done it? She's at the Algonquin Hotel in New York City. No, she's not. In May of 1932, Dorothy is going to come on out to San Francisco, make a little trip to the West Coast. Dorothy is finally checked out of the Algonquin and is coming to the West Coast to visit the section of the world where the husband, who abandoned her all those years ago, lives, albeit Paul's still supporting her. He pays for the trip. Perhaps Dorothy is the mystery woman that the cook sees that night. Perhaps Jean Harlow walks in on the two, Dorothy and Paul, together. Maybe someone else does. Maybe no one walks in on the two and Dorothy just has a moment of terrible. Maybe someone does walk in on the two. Dorothy sees the crime happen and runs for her life and then, oh God, proceeds on to her terrible fate. Because this story is just tragedy on tragedy. Dorothy Millette is found dead two days later after the death of Paul Byrne floating in the Sacramento River. She has either leapt or been pushed to her death from the Delta King steamboat while on a river cruise. Back at the hotel that she's staying in in San Francisco, her diaries have been taken, her room has been ransacked. So many odd circumstances. As for Jean Harlow, Jean is immediately sent to where else her mother's home, and Jean isn't questioned for a good day plus. And when she is questioned, Jean says she doesn't know anything about that weird note, nor the ex-wife's possible poolside visit the night before. Jean will say, I was at my mother's the whole night. MGM, in caring for reputation and perception more than anything, will push Jean Harlow into a new marriage to sort of tamp down the scandal. Jean's next husband is a cinematographer. His name is Hal Rawson. They get married in 1933, but y'all, this is just a disaster that'll end a scant eight months later. Jean Harlow will continue to work and be enormously successful, but 
Not a good end here. Her health will give out. Jean Harlow passes away so young and so talented with so much left to do at the age of 26, dying June 7th in 1937, never once speaking publicly about the death of her husband, Paul Byrne. Now, both the coroner and the follow-up inquest return a cause of death as death by suicide. Nothing further to investigate here, folks. Let's everybody move along. And then, honestly, Paul's death just becomes rumor, tabloid fodder, and a thing of myth. Until 1960, there's an article in Playboy that will resurrect the case. But it is really in 1990 when Samuel Marks, who is a film producer, he releases a book called Deadly Illusions that lends way more insight into our man Nick calling this one out correctly. Samuel Marks is a friend and colleague of Paul Byrne. He publishes his book, Deadly Illusions, giving his own views on the death. Samuel Marks claims that on the morning of September 5th, 1932, before the police had been notified of the discovery of Paul's body, Samuel Marks witnesses Irving Thalberg tampering with evidence. The boy wonder, wonderkin director, married to Norma Shearer, also the basis of F. Scott Fitzgerald's last unfinished novel, The Last Tycoon, Irving Thalberg. Maybe he has a reason. Maybe Louis B. said, hey man, you gotta help out the studio. Regardless, the following day, Samuel Marks is told by studio executives that they know this the next day, that the case would be ruled suicide because of impotence in order to avoid a scandal that might ruin Gene Harlow's career. Samuel Marks will go on to claim that Paul Byrne was in fact murdered by his ex-partner, Dorothy Millette, who then went on to commit suicide. That is the theory of Samuel Marks. Truly, there is a case to make for our whole sordid cast of characters in this one. There are a lot of folks that have a motive and the means too. And, you know, maybe Dorothy will complete death by suicide days later as her ticket to financial security is gone. Jean Harlow is the beneficiary of Paul Burns' will when Dorothy's sort of forgotten. I don't know. Maybe she did do it. Maybe she saw it happen and was pushed overboard for it. Maybe she's taking the rap historically for something that she didn't do. Honestly, we're never going to know, I fear. Whatever the truth may be, I am solidly in Dominic's camp here. MGM totally covered it up. Whoever did the crime, MGM helped them out a little. With the idea being, at least for MGM's point of view, it is better to be found dead of suicide because you're impotent than murdered by your wife from common law marriage when you're married to one of our top stars. Rumors about the Harlow Burn home, which is still left standing, run rampant throughout the next decades. There are also reports of another suicide in the home possibly maybe a drowning in the pool in the coming decades. But these are kind of sketchy. They're more legend than documented. Our mystery does not end here, investigators, because the Harlow Burn home does have a Dominic Dunn connection and a whole history after Paul Byrne's death. 
We're going to talk about that right after a short break to hear from our sponsors. What happens to the Harlow Burn house? The home is sold by Jean Harlow, not quick enough for her in any kind of timeline. And there is quite a bit of financial dealing and wrangling after Paul's death. And the infamous Harlow Burn home will go through a few owners in its time before coming to a new owner in 1963 with the connection to our man Nick. Also a connection to one of the most terrible and notorious crimes of the 20th century. The home's new owner in 1963 is Jay Sebring. And Jay Sebring, y'all, celebrity stylist to every male head of hair in Hollywood. Jay Sebring is an absolute legend. It is terrible, and it's such a trite word to use, unfortunate, maddening. There are so many words to use that Jay Sebring, this talented and amazing soul in the world, becomes nameless in the wake of his murder by the followers of Charles Manson in August of 1969. Jay, along with all the others at the Saleo Drive home that night, do just become and others mentioned in newspaper and press accounts. And the impact of Jay's loss, along with the other victims, becomes forgotten in all of the sensationalism that surrounds the hunt for Manson's followers and the trial afterward. My promise to you as a storyteller, I am determined not to forget Jay's story. That story will be coming to us from Dominic Dunn's point of view within the arc of Dunn and Dunn. That terrible crime shifts everything in Nick's Hollywood. But a different story for a different day I promise it's coming. Today, though, in this episode, I want to ensure that I wrap up this house narrative and introduce its connection to Jay Sebring, a great friend of Dominic's in the 1960s. So growing up, we know in our world Vidal Sassoon and Paul Mitchell, maybe. Vidal Sassoon and Paul Mitchell learned it by watching Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring in the early 60s owns Sebring International. He is a world-famous men's hairstylist, which isn't really a thing. Men have barbers. Jay Sebring is not a barber. He is a hairstylist. He makes men hairstyling go global. There's a glorious appearance that he does on To Tell the Truth. I need to tell you in the early 1960s, there is nobody bigger than Jay Sebring when it comes to men and hair. By 1963, Jay Sebring is the celebrity hairstylist to the stars. Making it will buy the Harlow Burn home. And he's really on the rise. He is cutting and styling the hairs of Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, Quincy Jones. Those sound kind of fancy, but you've also got Jim Morrison going to Jay for his rock and roll freewheeling hair. Oh, Adam West, Batman, y'all, William Dozier, too, even Dominic Dunn. Everyone goes to Jay Sebring. And life in 1963 in Los Angeles is great for Jay. He's friends with Dominic and Lenny. Like, this is a, a running crew. This whole set is intricately tied together 
within Hollywood at this time. And Jay's having a marvelous time vetting the ladies, styling the hair. There's a lot going on with Jay. And it is one night in 1964 at the Whiskey A Go Go where Jay Sebring will meet the beautiful Sharon Tate and a love affair is born. Jay and Sharon will date for about a year and a half. And then one day, Sharon will go overseas to film The Fearless Vampire Killers with a director named Roman Polanski. And the heart wants what the heart wants. And soon enough, Sharon has dumped Jay. And Jay is sad by this. Jay is sadder when Sharon and Roman marry in 1968. But Jay and Sharon remain really, really good friends. There's no one in the world that Jay Sebring loves more than Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate does move in to the home with Jay. When he buys that home and they start dating, she'll live there until about 1966. But Sharon Tate doesn't like that home either. She says she feels a presence there. She's kind of creeped out by the home, very similar to the way Jean Harlow was. Sharon says one night that she's alone there and she's sleeping and she'll wake up and see the apparition of a man with the same body type as Paul Byrne and she'll get out of that room as quickly as possible. Then poor Sharon leaves that room just to see an apparition of a woman tied to the banisters on the staircase railings with numerous slashes in her neck and after a blink that one goes away and Sharon Tate, bless her heart, is like, I think I'm going to pour a drink. So Sharon goes down to the secret bar, steadies herself with a shot, only to get back up the stairs to see the ghost of Paul Byrne pacing the hallways outside of the bedroom. Sharon, again, with the breakup with Jay in 66, will be out of that home soon enough. But again, the two do remain really close friends. They remain so close, in fact, that Jay Sebring is in the home on Saleo Drive, just about a mile away from his home on Easton Drive, that fateful, terrible August night in 1969. Jay is 35 years old when he is killed by the followers of Charles Manson. What happens, though, to the home after Jay Sebring's death? Now, this is kind of a nice story. There's a young California couple and they love joy riding through the Benedict Canyon. And these two young lovebirds love this home. It's their dream. And wouldn't it be nice? And the home is on the market after the death of Jay Sebring. Naturally, his parents and family are devastated. And with the home and all the notoriety and publicity the case is getting, there are tons of looky loos. And Jay's family wants to ensure in selling the home that it goes with an owner that will not do what the rock bands or the cults that they're currently getting offers from already for the home probably want to do with it. The doors are renting a house just a few houses away. The parents are very worried and very concerned about what befalls Jay's home. So here comes a sweet young couple, a doctor and his pretty blonde wife, and the doctor comes in and says, yes, back in my school days at UCLA, I would joyride through the canyon in the late 1950s. And I always loved this home. 
He meets the girl and he graduates and now they drive together through the canyon, dreaming and such and looking at homes that they might be able to afford one day. And the Harlow Burn House always sticks with him and his little heart. And it's all very dreamy. But hey, the doctor and his wife are offering way less than what the home is worth, but they offer everything they have. And the Sebring family will sell the home to the nice, sweet couple, Ron and Maggie. They buy the home in 1970. When they move into the home, they report they've never seen anything like a ghost. They've never had anything mysterious happen. No apparitions. But when Ron and Maggie do move in, all of Jay's life is still there. All of his stuff, his papers, his photographs. The rooms have all been painted in far out colors. The bedroom is black. The ceilings are mint green. There are purple walls. All the woodwork has been painted white. The plaster in between the beams of the home has been covered with brightly colored wallpaper. Ron and Maggie do report that there are Manson devotees that will come to the property. They've also found a few folks having some private time occasionally in their driveway as well. But Ron and Maggie live at the home a really long time, decades and decades. They'll convert the home back to some of its former glory. And the two after, I don't know, 50 plus years, will sell the home, along with dividing off some of the other properties too in the early 20-teens. So now that property is technically the main home. The carriage house servants' quarters has been split off of that property and they're now two separate residences. There is quite a history and mystery attached to the Harlow Burn home and spiderweb attachments too to Dominic through Jay Sebring. I do feel though, our nine-year-old Nick was on to something with this one. I'm with you, little buddy. MGM definitely did something to cover up a murder and make it look like suicide to protect their Gene Harlow investment. Investigators, that is us for the week. We are wrapping up the last of our nine-year-old Nick and this last of three threads he planted from his childhood self. We will be going along quite a journey with Nick through his years in Hollywood and beyond, too, on continuing episodes of Done and Done. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of Done and Done. Thank you for your support, your kind reviews. Y'all are simply amazing investigators. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.